Chapter One of the Star Chamber An Historical Romance, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Star Chamber, Volume One by William Harrison Ainsworth. Chapter One The Three Cranes in the Vintry. Adjoining the Vintry Wharf, and at the corner of a narrow lane communicating with Thames Street, there stood, in the early part of the seventeenth century, a tavern called the Three Cranes. This old and renowned place of entertainment had then been in existence more than two hundred years, though under other designations. In the reign of Richard the Second, when it was first established, it was styled the Painted Tavern, from the circumstance of its outer walls being fancifully coloured and adorned with bacchanalian devices. But these decorations went out of fashion in time, and the tavern, somewhat changing its external features, though preserving all its internal comforts and accommodation, assumed the name of the Three Crowns, under which title it continued until the accession of Elizabeth, when it became, by a slight modification, the Three Cranes, and so remained in the days of her successor, and, indeed, long afterwards. Not that the last adopted denomination had any reference, as might be supposed, to the three huge wooden instruments on the wharf, employed with ropes and pulleys to unload the lighters and other vessels that brought up butts and hogsheads of wine from the larger craft below bridge, and constantly thronged the banks, though no doubt they indirectly suggested it. The three cranes depicted on the large signboard, suspended in front of the tavern, were long-necked, long-beaked birds, each with a golden fish in its bill. But under whatever designation it might be known, crown or crane, the tavern had always maintained a high reputation for excellence of wine, and this is the less surprising when we take into account its close proximity to the vast vaults and cellars of the Vintry where the choicest produce of Gascony, Bordeaux, and other wine-growing districts was deposited, some of which we may reasonably conclude would find its way to its tables. Good wine, it may be incidentally remarked, was cheap enough when the three cranes was first opened, the delicate juice of the Gascoigne grape being then vended at four pence the gallon, and Rhenish at sixpence. Prices, however, had risen considerably at the period of which we proposed to treat, and the tavern was as well reputed and well frequented as ever. Even more so, for it had considerably advanced in estimation since it came into the hands of a certain enterprising French skipper, Prosper Bonaventure by name, who entrusted its management to his active and pretty little wife, Damery while he himself prosecuted his trading voyages between the Garonne and the Thames. And very well Madame Bonaventure fulfilled the duties of hostess, as will be seen. Now as the skipper was a very sharp fellow, and perfectly understood his business, practically anticipating the transatlantic axiom of buying at the cheapest market and selling at the dearest, he soon contrived to grow rich. He did more. He pleased his customers at the Three Cranes, taking care to select his wines judiciously, and having good opportunities, he managed to obtain possession of some delicious vintages, which could not be matched elsewhere. 
and with this nectar at his command the fortune of his house was made all the town gallants flocked to the three cranes to dine at the admirable french ordinary newly established there and crush a flask or so of the exquisite bordeaux about which and its delicate flavour and bouquet all the connoisseurs in claret were raving from midday therefore till late in the afternoon there were nearly as many gay barges and wherries as lighters lying off the vintry wharf and sometimes when accommodation was wanting the little craft were moored along the shore all the way from queenhithe to the steel-yard at which latter place the catherine wheel was almost as much noted for racy reenish and high-dried neat's tongues as our tavern was for fine bordeaux and well-seasoned pates not the least however of the attractions of the three cranes was the hostess herself a lively little brunette was madame bonaventure still young or at all events very far from being old with extremely fine teeth which she was fond of displaying and a remarkably neat ankle which she felt no inclination to hide beneath the sweep of her round circling fatheringale her figure was quite that of a miniature venus and as like most of her countrywomen she understood the art of dress to admiration she set off her person to the best advantage always attiring herself in a style and in colours that suited her and never indulging in an unwarrantable extravagance of ruff or absurd and unbecoming length of peaked bodice as to the stuffs she wore they were certainly above her station for no court dame could boast of richer silks than those in which the pretty damerie appeared on fete days and this was accounted for by reason that the good skipper seldom returned from a trip to france without bringing his wife a piece of silk brocade or velvet from lyons or some little matter from paris such as a ruff cuff partlet bandlet or filet thus the last french mode might be seen at the three crowns displayed by the hostess as well as the last french entremet at its table since among other important accessories to the well-doing of the house madame bonaventure kept a chef de cuisine one of her compatriots of such superlative skill that in later times he must infallibly have been distinguished as a cordon bleu but not having yet completed our description of the charming bordelaise we must add that she possessed a rich southern complexion fine sparkling black eyes shaded by long dark eyelashes and overarched by jetty brows and that her raven hair was combed back and gathered in a large roll over her smooth forehead which had the five points of beauty complete over this she wore a prettily conceived coif with a frontlet a well-starched well-plaited ruff encompassed her throat her upper lip was darkened but in the slightest degree by down like the softest silk and this peculiarity a peculiarity it would be in an englishwoman though frequently observable in the beauties of the south of france lent additional piquancy and zest to her charms in the eyes of her numerous adorers her ankles we have said were trim and it may be added that they were oftener displayed in an embroidered french velvet shoe than in one of spanish leather while in walking out she increased her stature by the altitude of a chopine captain bonaventure was by no means jealous and even if he had been it would have mattered little since he was so constantly away 
Fancying, therefore, she had some of the privileges of a widow, our lively Damarie flirted a good deal with the gayest and handsomest of the galliards frequenting her house, but she knew where to stop. No license or indecorum was ever permitted in the three cranes, and that is saying a great deal in favour of the hostess, when the dissolute character of the age is taken into consideration. Besides this, Cyprien, or stout, well-favoured young Gascon, who filled the posts of drawer and chamberlain, together with two or three other trencher-scrapers who served at table and waited on the guests, were generally sufficient to clear the house of any troublesome roisterers. Thus the reputation of the three cranes was unblemished, in spite of the liveliness and coquetry of its mistress, and in spite also of the malicious tongues of rival tavern-keepers which were loud against it. A pretty woman is sure to have enemies and calumniators, and Madame Bonaventure had more than enough, but she thought very little about them. There was one point, however, on which it behoved her to be careful, and extremely careful she was, not leaving a single loophole for censure or attack. This was the question of religion. On first taking the house, Madame Bonaventure gave it out that she and the skipper were Huguenots, descended from families who had suffered much persecution during the time of the League, for staunch adherence to their faith. And the statement was generally credited, though there were some who professed to doubt it. Certain it was, our hostess did not wear any cross, beads, or other outward symbol of papacy, and though this might count for little, it was never discovered that she attended Mass in secret. Her movements were watched, but without anything coming to light that had reference to religious observances of any kind. Those who tried to trace her found that her visits were mostly paid to Paris Garden, the Rose, and the Globe, where our immortal bard's plays were then being performed, or some other place of amusement, and if she did go on the river at times, it was merely upon a party of pleasure, accompanied by gay gallants in velvet cloaks and silken doublets, and by light-hearted dames like herself, and not by notorious plotters or sour priests. Still, as many Bordeaux merchants frequented the house, as well as traders from the Hans-towns and other foreigners, it was looked upon by the suspicious as a hotbed of Romish heresy and treason. Moreover, these maligners affirmed that English recusants, as well as seminary priests from abroad, had been harboured there, and clandestinely spirited away from the pursuit of justice by the skipper but the charges were never substantiated, and could, therefore, only proceed from envy and malice. Whatever Madame Bonaventure's religious opinions might be, she kept her own counsel so well that no one ever found them out. But evil days were at hand. Hitherto all had been smiling and prosperous. The prospect now began to darken. Within the last twelve months a strange and unlooked-for interference had taken place with our hostess's profits, which she had viewed at first without much anxiety, because she did not clearly comprehend its scope. But latterly, as its formidable character became revealed, it began to fill her with uneasiness. The calamity, as she naturally enough regarded it, arose in the following manner. The present was an age of monopolies and patents, granted by a crown ever eager to obtain money under any pretext however unjustifiable and iniquitous provided it was plausibly coloured and these vexatious privileges were purchased by greedy and unscrupulous persons 
for the purpose of turning them into instruments of extortion and wrong though various branches of trade and industry groaned under the oppression inflicted upon them there were no means of redress the patentees enjoyed perfect immunity grinding them down as they pleased farming out whole districts and dividing the spoil their miserable victims dared scarcely murmur having ever the terrible court of star chamber before them which their persecutors could command and which punished libellers as they would be accounted if they gave utterance to their wrongs and charged their oppressors with misdoing with fine branding and the pillory many were handled in this sort and held up in terrorum to the others hence it came to pass that the star chamber from the fearful nature of its machinery its extraordinary powers the notorious corruption and venality of its officers the peculiarity of its practice which always favoured the plaintiff and the severity with which it punished any libelling or slanderous words uttered against the king's representative as the patentees were considered or any conspiracy of or false accusation brought against them it came to pass we say that this terrible court became as much dreaded in protestant england as the inquisition in catholic spain the punishments inflicted by the star chamber were as we learn from a legal authority and the counsel of the court fine imprisonment loss of ears or nailing to the pillory slitting the nose branding the forehead whipping of late days wearing of papers in public places or any punishment but death and john chamberlain esq writing to sir dudley carlton about the same period observes that the world is now much terrified with the star chamber there being not so little an offence against any proclamation but is liable and subject to the censure of that court and for proclamations and patents they are become so ordinary that there is no end every day bringing forth some new project or other as within these two days here is one come forth for tobacco wholly engrossed by sir thomas roe and his partners which if they can keep and maintain against the general clamour will be a great commodity unless peradventure indignation rather than all other reasons may bring that filthy weed out of use what would be the effect of such a patent nowadays would it at all restrict the use of the filthy weed in truth proceeds chamberlain the world doth even groan under the burthen of these perpetual patents which are become so frequent that whereas at the king's coming in there were complaints of some eight or nine monopolies then in being there are now said to be multiplied to as many scores from the foregoing citation from a private letter of the time the state of public feeling may be gathered and the alarm occasioned in all classes by these oppressions perfectly understood amongst those who had obtained the largest share of spoil were two persons destined to occupy a prominent position in our history they were sir giles montpesson and sir francis mitchell both names held in general dread and detestation though no man ventured to speak ill of them openly since they were as implacable in their animosities as usurious and griping in their demands and many an ear had been lost many a nose slit many a back scourged at the cart's tail because the unfortunate owners had stigmatized them according to their deserts thus they enjoyed a complete immunity of wrong and with the terrible court of star chamber to defend them and to punish their enemies they set all opposition at defiance 
insatiable and inscrupulous this avaricious pair were ever on the alert to devise new means of exaction and plunder and amongst the latest and most productive of their inventions were three patents which they had obtained through the instrumentality of sir edward villiers half-brother of the ruling favourite the marquis of buckingham and for due consideration money of course for the licensing of alehouses the inspection of inns and hostelries and the exclusive manufacture of gold and silver thread it is with the two former of these that we have now to deal inasmuch as it was their mischievous operation that affected madame bonaventure so prejudicially and this we shall more fully explain as it will serve to show the working of a frightful system of extortion and injustice happily no longer in existence by the sweeping powers conferred upon them by their patents the whole of the inns of the metropolis were brought under the control of the two extortioners who levied such imposts as they pleased the withdrawal of a license or the total suppression of a tavern or the plea of its being a riotous and disorderly house immediately followed the refusal of any demand however excessive and most persons preferred the remote possibility of ruin with the chance of averting it by ready submission to the positive certainty of losing both substance and liberty by resistance fearful was the havoc occasioned by these licensed depredators yet no one dared to check them no one ventured to repine they had the name of law to justify their proceedings and all its authority to uphold them compromises were attempted in some instances but they were found unavailing easily evaded by persons who never intended to be bound by them they only added keenness to the original provocation without offering a remedy for it the two bloodsuckers it was clear would not desist from draining the life-current from the veins of their victims while a drop remained and they were well served in their iniquitous task for the plain reason that they paid their agents well partners they had none none at least who cared to acknowledge themselves as such but the subordinate officers of the law and indeed some high in office it was hinted the sheriff's followers bailiffs tipstaves and others were all in their pay besides a host of myrmidons base sordid knaves who scrupled not at false swearing cozenage or any sort of rascality even forgery of legal documents if required no wonder poor madame bonaventure finding she had got into the clutches of these harpies began to tremble for the result End of chapter one